This is Our American Stories. And the minute you hear that music, you're put into a time and a place. And Jesse and I often think we should be doing a two-hour special on just great soundtracks to movies. Because the music is just so astounding and so good. And always suits the purpose. And, again, that's the Godfather soundtrack. And we love to talk about art here, and we love to talk about actors and musicians, and even comedians. Our hour on Steve Martin. We urge you to go to Our American Network, go on the search button, and find that Steve Martin hour. It's terrific. And on this day in history, in 1978, actor John Cazale died. He's an anomaly in cinematic history. He appeared on the big screen wholly formed, and immediately made an indelible imprint. And then, just as suddenly, six years later, he was gone. In that short time, he created four characters in five feature films. The Godfather, The Conversation, The Godfather Part Two, Dog Day Afternoon, and The Deer Hunter. Oh my goodness, that's crazy. That can still be regarded over 40 years later as benchmarks of film acting. He was Fredo, by the way, in The Godfather. And we'll get to that later, but I just wanted to give you an idea of who he was. John's work, like his life, cannot be accurately measured in duration, only in depth. The entirety of his screen time in all five movies boils down to mere minutes. But the more we see, the more we cannot look away. It isn't simply that he had the distinction of only appearing in masterpieces. It is that his performances within them are also masterpieces. Those who mistake celebrity for ability may question how good he really was. After all, he wasn't really a movie star. He was never billed above the title. But John Cazale is acting's best-kept secret. He played one of the most iconic characters in film history, as I'd said before, Fredo Corleone from The Godfather. Yet today, most people don't even know his name. To prove this point, a picture was shown of John Cazale playing Fredo to people walking the streets of New York City. Here's their reaction. You know who this guy is? Nope. Nope. Something from The Godfather? He was the oldest one. He was a little slow. They, they sounded betrayed. Yes? Yes. Did he play Fre- Fredo? Yeah, Fredo. Uh, Fredo. Uh, Fredo. 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 Do you, remember, do you, do you, do you know uh, what the actor's name is? Well, his name was Fredo. Uh, wait, I'm gonna get it. I'm gonna get it. Oh, I love this guy too. What was his name? He was very good. Fredo. Uh, I know it was you, Fredo. I know it was you, Fredo. The actors John Cazale supported: Robert De Niro, Gene Hackman, Al Pacino, and Meryl Streep, among them, all said working with John Cazale made them better. He greatly influenced many others, such as Steve Buscemi. Sam Rockwell, and the late Philip Seymour Hoffman, who were of the following acting generations. If the Academy Awards can be regarded as an indicator of climactic excellence, John has an impeccable track record, not just for himself. He was never mentioned in the nominations for his acting, probably because the Academy never caught him doing any. It's a well-known bit of movie trivia that all five films in which he appeared were nominated for Best Picture and three of them received the Oscar. Further, he appeared posthumously 
in archival footage in The Godfather Part 3, which was also nominated for Best Picture, maintaining his perfect record. He is the only actor in history to have this distinction. John Cazale was more than eager to explore the dark, damaged sides of his characters. In doing so, he presented us with a human instead of a type. Let's fast forward to a scene from Godfather 2, where we hear a little bit about John's gift as an actor and his approach to his craft. We open with a scene between John playing Fredo and Al Pacino playing his brother, Michael. Mike, you don't come to Las Vegas and talk to a man like Mo Green like that. Fredo, you're my older brother and I love you. But don't ever take sides with anyone against the family again. By the way, the subtlety in his acting uh, is, was so amazing, the, the emotional depth of it. When Al arrives in Las Vegas and John is already there and he's got the band set up and the hookers. He does like this kind of, the band is playing, he does this kind of thing and it's just so brilliant. I mean, that dance. Welcome to Las Vegas. Well, his idea, right? And Al says, get rid of them. Get rid of them, Fredo. Hey, Mike. Fredo, I'm here on business. I leave tomorrow and I get rid of them. I'm tired. And the look on his face was so amazing, the, the emotional depth of it. A whole kind person became present in that one reaction to Al ordering him about like that. Hey, come on! That's where John fit in so miraculously because all of that vulnerability, all of that pain that was in John as a man is suddenly connecting with us on a level that we never thought possible. In the late 50s, we both were in acting class together, studying with Peter Cass. Peter Cass was quick to see what you might be ashamed of in yourself and in your background and to point out that this was part of who you were and that you needed every part of yourself. The idea of only presenting yourself in the best light was anathema to him. I mean, if you look at John's work, you see how willingly he went to the dark side <laughs> and how capable he was of doing that. John felt very strongly that finding the character, you had to find the pain first where that character was in pain, where he hurt. He felt that that was the major motivation and that would translate into positive choices as an actor. I think the artist is born a suffering child and uh, there are all kinds of reasons for children to suffer and I, I don't know exactly what it was. That was John's reason, but I could venture a guess, certainly. It was probably you know, a strong, overbearing father. That was difficult. The life of John Cazale, who died on this day in history, more after these messages. This is Our American Stories. We continue with the life of John Cazale. 
And you're listening to the soundtrack of The Deer Hunter. It's beautiful. And by the way, that, that point that somebody made before, that he knew how to find the pain in the character, that was what Cazelle did. And in doing so, I think found pain in all of us. Cazelle's five films received 40 Oscar nominations. In addition, 14 of the performances by actors he supported were nominated for Oscars. This is not a coincidence. He enriched every film in which he acted. He inspired every actor with whom he worked. Far more impressive than John's association with Oscar-nominated films was the acting he did in them. But what he did was something beyond acting, what can be called transcendent acting or non-acting. Sir Ben Kingsley observed, the camera is allergic to acting. John's characters tend to just stick in our minds because, as opposed to just seeing them, we feel as if we're meeting them. For those who weren't alive when The Godfather premiered, it is hard to quantify its impact on the culture. There is no contemporary equivalent. The only comparison is the arrival of the Beatles in America. The opening of The Godfather, like the arrival of the Beatles, was similar to a cultural earthquake. Nothing was quite the same afterwards. And like the Beatles, The Godfather has remained contemporary. Shortly after the film premiered, a joke started to circulate. Someone would say, In our family, he's Fredo. Everyone would laugh because they knew exactly what that meant. The subject of the joke was weak, inept, a bit stupid perhaps, most certainly a loser. No one ever said, In our family, he's Salonzo or Clemenza or Tessio. What would that mean? But Fredo, everyone knew. It was vivid, clear, perfect. Because the actor who portrayed Fredo, someone named John Cazale, made him vivid, clear, and perfect. From the moment he comes into view in The Godfather, he commands the screen, not through bombast or bravura, but with sublime subtlety. In the midst of the noisy activity of the wedding celebration, he slowly and quietly approaches the table where Brother Michael and Kay are sitting. Kay was played by Diane Keaton. When he appears, he is quite drunk, but John is too fine an actor to play drunk. Instead, he plays a drunken man trying to appear sober. He steps carefully and slowly, puts his hand on Kay's chair to steady himself, and kneels down in his tux to get eye level with Michael and Kay. How are you, Fredo? Fredo? My brother Fredo, this is Kay Adams. Hi. Hi. Hello. This is my brother Mike. Are you having a good time? Huh? Yeah. Yeah, this is your friend, huh? <laughs> the whole scene takes 21 seconds, but it tells us vital information. Fredo is a lover in a family of killers. With his inhibitions lowered by alcohol, we see he is sweet, he's affectionate, he's soft-spoken. He doesn't belong there. He's not looking for power. He's looking for love and acceptance. And maybe, just maybe, a little bit of respect. But the scene where Don Corleone, played by Marlon Brando, is shot in front of his son Fredo, Brando was reportedly so impressed with John's commitment to his role that he laid in the street off camera while John shot his close-ups to afford him the greatest sense of reality in the scene. 
After the Godfather, John was cast as Stan, the assistant to an introverted, paranoid surveillance consultant in The Conversation, a psychological mystery thriller written, produced, and directed by Francis Ford Coppola and starring Gene Hackman. Here's Coppola, Meryl Streep, and Philip Seymour Hoffman. He was able to tackle anything that came up in the first Godfather. Then I wrote a role for him in the conversation. (laughs) He's a nice guy for a cop. I knew what was just a character of an assistant would suddenly come to life as a real character. The conversation was a cult film. People already had it on as their favorite film of all time. Especially people who wanted to show that they were impervious to the mass taste, you know, like, it's not The Godfather that I love the most, it's. I would almost bet money that all the actors that worked with him were inspired by what he did on the day. To take it that much further, to be that much more creative or or risky uh, or personal, because he seemed to be kind of uncomfortably vulnerable in everything he did, and that always makes people go, I think I gotta work a little harder. I think I better rethink what I'm doing here because this guy's really going for it. This guy's really going for it. And that was Philip Seymour Hoffman, that last clip. John took roles that no actor would want, and by virtue of his performances, he managed to turn them into parts every actor wished he'd played. Here's Al Pacino and Meryl Streep. Streep starred with Cazale in his last film, The Deer Hunter, and was also his longtime girlfriend. Fredo, come with me. It's the only way out of here tonight. Roth is dead. Fredo. He became whoever it was he was playing. And he did that by asking questions because he taught me about asking questions and not having to answer them. That's the beauty. What's wonderful about it is you open the door to things. Directors used to call him 20 questions. He was never, never, never satisfied with just the outlines of a character or just filling out the expected thing. He got so much from the delving into things. It was a lesson in itself. I think I learned more about acting from John than anybody. That's a pretty heady statement. That's Al Pacino saying he learned more about acting than anybody, and he studied with Lee Strasberg, and he studied with Uta Hagen, the two masters of the New York theater and of film. Amazing. There are moments in each of John Cazale's performances so real, so vulnerable, that one wonders if he should be watching. Unlike most actors, there was never an instance in any of his performances when John was winking at the audience, trying to signal that the character's deficiencies didn't apply to him personally. Here's Francis Ford Coppola on the infamous I'm smart and I want respect scene from The Godfather 2 between Cazale and Pacino. Cazale's haunting countenance and strong portrayal of weak characters is unmatched. I remember when we shot that scene and uh, and, and thinking that uh, we had shot something really that had come to life and was extraordinary. And you know, very definitely the way Cazale used the chair, because that chair was there and certainly you could slump in it and everything, but somehow he used it to express what was the point in a way that um, I had never anticipated. I've always taken care of you, Fredo. Taken care of me? 
You're my kid brother and you take care of me? Did you ever think about that? Did you ever once think about that? Send Fredo off to do this, send Fredo off to do that. Let Fredo take care of some Mickey Mouse nightclub somewhere. Send Fredo to pick somebody up at the airport. I'm your older brother, Mike, and I was stepped over. That's the way Pop wanted it. It ain't the way I wanted it. I can handle things. I'm smart. Not like everybody says. Like dumb. I'm smart and I want respect. He's such an imp. You know, he's so irresponsible and he'd be so desperate, he's so anxious to get his piece of the pie and to be respected. Heartbreaking scene. And what are we talking about? We're talking about a ter totally antisocial, probably terrible man. And Cazal uh, broke your heart. He really let himself out there. He's really vulnerable. You know, it's not easy to play weak. You know, if you get the script for The Godfather, you know, every young actor is going to want to play Sonny or Michael, you know? They're not going to want to play Fredo. You want to be strong, and you want to be, hmm. So you want to say, look how talented I am. Weakness is something that a lot of actors, I think, are afraid to play. They'll, they'll play weak men, but they'll do it in a really sort of showboaty way to let you know that they're not weak, that it's a performance. And Cazal was just so disinclined to do that. And by the way, we're disinclined to do that in our lives, too. We all do it. We know it. And we do it with our friends. We do it with our family members. And I think this is why we seek refuge in art. It is the one place where we can then talk to people about characters and talk about ourselves while we're doing it. And that's why we spend a lot of time here in art and storytelling. And this is Our American Stories. And when we come back, more on the life of John Cazale. One of the great actors you know but don't know. Who changed, I believe, and I know Greg who helped and did this piece, have changed acting as we know it for some of the great actors in America. More after these messages. talking about John Cazale for the hour and we love talking about art here on our American stories and music and what's beautiful about movies is the intersection of screenwriting so there's the writing there's that human talent almost that operatic talent of the actor and then of course there's the music and again one day we're going to be putting together and I hope real soon just an hour or two on soundtracks and the stories of the people behind those soundtracks because the soundtrack can make or break a movie. And you're listening to the soundtrack from The Deer Hunter. And by the way, to remind you, Cazale, well, he created four characters in five feature films that I think can still be regarded as benchmarks of film acting. And the films he were in, all of them received Oscar nominations. And that's pretty unbelievable. 
John's art was ahead of the curve in the evolution of acting. That's what made him special. When the 20th century began with silent movies, acting was demonstrative, it was demonstrative, it was exaggerated. Lots of big gestures. It was still based in the traditions of the stage. Because on the stage, you've got to hit the back row. And thus, the big gestures. As the technology developed, first with the introduction of sound, and then with the refinements in the process itself, actors came to understand they could be subtler in their performances. Still, the desire to emote, to show off, was always present. During the 1950s, actors such as two of John's idols, Montgomery Cliff and Marlon Brando, embraced Stanislavski's method of acting. And he's a Russian critic and teacher of acting. And began to explore the underlying motivations and emotions in their characters. So in other words, going from representational acting to, well, getting under the skin acting. This resulted in greater realism along with heightened emotionalism, which showed itself in climactic moments. John didn't push anything. Instead, he could invite people in and compel them to draw closer to the character he was playing. But back to the story. What John knew was that our perception of someone comes from nonverbal input, much more than verbal. How many times have you said, quote, I met this guy and he seemed okay, but there was just something about him I didn't like. It was nothing he said or did, that's for sure. It was just a sense that you got about him. That sense comes from all the energy generated by what the guy is thinking and feeling, all the things that make up his history and therefore his personality. It works the same way in acting, and Cazell knew how to find this life in his characters. Paradox was always present in his work. He didn't play good guys. All his characters had flaws, some more than others. He played a pimp, a thief, and perhaps a killer, and a braggart who waved a gun in the faces of his friends and at least once punched a woman. The most normal of his characters was a professional voyeur. Yet somehow we have affection for each of these men or at least an acceptance of them. And that's because John never judged the character he was playing. He understood the character, all the characters. Such understanding can only come through exploring their humanity, their motivation. Here's Steve Buscemi and co-star Al Pacino discussing Cazale's role as bank robber Sal in Dog Day Afternoon. Just from the moment you see him on screen in Dog Day Afternoon... He's so... Um, you the manager? He's so strange-looking, you know. A really intense face, and then, you know, the, the receding hair, uh, hairline, the huge forehead, and then the long hair. Um, I had just never seen a character like that on film before. Just keep talking like nothing was wrong. I remember we were casting, and Sidney Lament wanted a, a 19-year-old boy. To, he, he thought that would be very important, and he was sort of right. I'd been reading a lot of people for it, and Al kept asking me to uh, to read John. So of course Sydney got 
think well, John, that's not what I'm thinking. John Cassell, no, the guy who did Fredo, no. Finally, because I've got such respect for Al, John came in. I was stunned. He could not have looked wronger. And then he read. And it was just the most extraordinary connection. I ain't going back to that prison, Sonny. I mean, I got the image of him in my mind, you know, that image of that character, oh, man. Everything he did, the hair, the, yeah. the movement. You, come with me. Watch him. Sit down, sit down. The intensity. Wow. You know, he's very intense, uh, but, but nervous. I mean, you felt at any time that he could really lose it. Stay right there! Gazelle is scary in that movie. He completely erases the dynamic that he had with Pacino in the Godfather movies. Hey, you, manager! Don't get ideas. I bark. That man there, see him? He bites. You don't ever really believe when you're watching the movie that Pacino is going to kill someone. Kazal, you think, might. There's a way out of this. I'm listen, telling you, there's listen, a way out of this. Were you serious about what you said? About what? About throwing... About throwing those bodies out the door. That's what I want, and you know, that's what I want him to think. No, I don't know what you think. Because I'll tell you right now, I'm ready to do it. Well, I'll tell you something. When he says that line, you believe he's ready to kill somebody just out of fear, you know? And, and I think that, that intensity level's in his eyes throughout the entire film. He, he provides that. It's right there, those eyes. It's like they cut to him a lot in that movie, and it's... It's because he's got that, he's got the stakes. And Lamette needs that to get the audience revved up. There's just something in that face that takes you into uh, an area that's very dark, personally dark, and heartbroken. Heartbroken and dark. And, well, that's Gazelle. A compelling choice John made was to play Sal in this movie, in the direction opposite that which most actors would choose. Typically, the psychotic gunman starts out soft-spoken and builds to a frenzy by the climax of the film. But here, instead, Sal is commanding at the start, barking orders at people, dominating them. Then, as the situation grows more complicated, he retreats inside of himself. And the quieter he gets the more dangerous he becomes. And by the way, that's so complicated and so brilliant. And you would read a script, and there's no way you could come up with that. You know, when I first looked at a screenplay and a script for theater, and I studied acting for a long time, I just was so overwhelmed with all the choices you could make, how to do it. It's not like reading a novel. When you read a novel, it's all there for us. But in the end, I agree with something a great acting coach once said, For the ordinary American, for the ordinary person, or even the average actor, it's best to just watch Shakespeare performed, because to read it is to miss the point. It's a blueprint for actors, and it's an emotional blueprint, and there's emotional data all over the place. But the average person can't see it. They can't see the subtext. They can't see the stage. They can't hear the music. And my goodness, Cazell could hear all of that. He could see all of it somehow. And that's what made him great. Also, what he did was these opposites. He, he was able to do the opposite. If you ever get to see On the Waterfront, there's a scene where Rod Steiger is going to sell out his brother. 
He's telling his brother, an aspiring possible boxing champ, to throw a fight for the mobsters. And you would think Marlon Brando would come through the seat and punch his brother. But all Brando does is the opposite. And all he says is, Charlie, Charlie. Like he was just disappointed. That's what made Brando great. It's what made Cazale great. This is Our American Stories, our final segment on the life of John Cazale after these messages. Friends say John Cazale had a great sense of humor. As with all other aspects of his acting, there was no effort to his humorous moments, no reach. He never signaled intent to be funny. He was completely real, but was capable of such subtle nuance. He catches us unexpectedly, and we laugh in spite of ourselves. To be sure, though, like in The Godfather, we are laughing at Fredo, this sad little drunken man, not with him as it was with Charlie Chaplin's Little Tramp. He is not in on the joke. But there is such vulnerability to him that we almost feel embarrassed by our laughter. Let's go back to Cazelle's performance in Dog Day Afternoon. There isn't a sadder character than, than Sal in Dog Day Afternoon, and yet he's hilarious. Sal! Sal! What? Where are you? And it's not about funny lines at all. It's just, uh, I mean, from the haircut to the... Everything everything about it is comic. Now, you got to understand something. If we leave the country, there's no coming back here. One of the funniest moments in the movie was completely unexpected. It was an improvised moment. Is there any special country you want to go to? Wyoming. No, Wyoming. It's not a country. That's all right. I, I'm going to take care of it. Now, I don't know where that came from. I know that the take was almost ruined because I started to laugh, but I, thank God, didn't wreck the soundtrack. And Al almost broke up. You know, that's a laugh. If you want to get a laugh there, he would no more go for that, you know. And so because of that, it's just instead of, you know, he goes past the stage of, ha ha, Wyoming, that's not a country. He, he goes past that and you are forced into this sort of anxiety and sorrow for the guy. Even in the funniest characters that he played, there was always something tragic in it. Indeed. Even in the most tragic characters, there was always something very funny. The character he's creating, I believe, is not some, is not necessarily something that, that that the director or the writer envisioned. I think what he brought to it ultimately was something that surprised the hell out of everyone on the day happened. Yeah, you'd start a scene, and then you know it would never start. That was the beauty of it. Then you realize, don't start. There's no such thing. It's just it's a continuum. You know, everything is a continuum. 
And so he would just say, what'd you do today, Al? After I just said a line to him, you know, he said, you seem like you, uh, you said you were going to go to so-and-so. And he would get you there. And you would just do this dance until you found your way. And then the improvisations would start, which was, and then the improvisations would go. And when they started to connect to what the reality of the scene was, he'd start to see. God, it was just, it was glorious. It was glorious. I've seen a ton of actors around John just give it a couple of minutes and you just see them go, what's that? What's he doing? How's he do that? No. What's the matter with you? You made me a promise. Didn't you? Did you promise me something, huh? Yeah. Did you say either we get away clean or we kill ourselves? Did you say but that? But I'm not talking. Did I'm, you? I'm not talking about that. I do believe Do you believe in keeping your promises? Huh? Yeah, but I'm not talking. Does talk it still go? Yeah, it still no. goes. Well, what the f are you talking about? Other actors either, you know, rose to the occasion and they didn't. Pacino definitely did. I think Al is one of the great actors of my generation, and uh, John gets a big assist. He just, he constantly made him better and better. He was inspiring. I mean, you just got, you got, a, you got inspired by it. So you did it. You went, he made you better. After Dog Day afternoon, Gazelle, a heavy smoker, was diagnosed with terminal cancer. At the time, casting had begun for the 1978 epic Vietnam War drama, the Deer Hunter, starring Robert De Niro and Christopher Walken. Gazelle was cast as Stanley, a Pennsylvania steelworker. All scenes involving Gazelle were filmed first. Because of his illness, the studio initially wanted to fire him, but Meryl Streep, John's girlfriend, whom he was living with at the time, and director Michael Cimino both threatened to walk away if they fired him. He was also uninsurable at the time, and according to Streep, Robert De Niro paid for his insurance because he wanted John Cazale in the film. It was going to be all right, Nicky. Go ahead, shoot. Shoot, Nicky. I learned about when we were, Michael and I were meeting with actors, and I was reading with some actors. At one point, uh, he wanted to use John, and, and there was an issue about his being not well. John Cazal had already been diagnosed with cancer and was uninsurable. Obviously, if, if you die halfway through um, giving your performance, it's going to cost a great deal of money to recast you. And Bob De Niro went to bat for John. He won't tell me because he's a very generous person, but I think he secured the bond on John's uh, participation. He was... Uh, sicker than we thought, but I wanted him to be in it. So Bob put his money down and got him in the film. And he was great in the movie. I mean, he was just beautiful in it. Hey, Snatch! Hey! 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 Look at this! Hey! Michael! Hey, man, how you doing? All right. Hey, where was you? Where was you? Where was I? Where were you? Where was you? We had everything all set there. The beer, the right axle. Am I right? Huh? Got a mustache. Yeah. Hey, looks pretty good. I think it's very clear that, that his talents were getting richer with every movie. I remember watching that movie, and I just felt like I was there in that town with these guys. I, I didn't feel like they were acting. Anybody see my boots? He's saying, uh, you know, let me, let me your boots. Let me your boots, and uh, De Niro's like, no, man. Hey, Mike, let me borrow your spares, huh? Your extra pair? No, Stan. What do you mean, no? Just what I said, no. No means no. 
friend. You're some friend, you know that? You gotta learn, Stanley. Every time you come up here, you got your head up your ass. Maybe he likes the view from up there, huh? Nah! He says, uh, he says, Stan, you see this? This is this. This is this. This ain't something else. This is this. From now on, you're on your own. Hey, you know your trouble, my con? Nobody ever knows what the f you're talking about. This is this. What the hell is that supposed to mean? This is this. You can watch the movie and the scenes that, that he's in and, and just watch him and be thoroughly entertained or really moved. And that was Steve Buscemi. John Cazale died before The Deer Hunter was released. He was 42. No story about John Cazale is complete without mentioning his girlfriend and again, a young actress at the time named Meryl Streep. But the most amazing thing to see was Meryl during all of this and the way she was with him and by his side right, right through the whole thing. Meryl, she was with him to the end and she, at the hospital at the end, she was an angel. She was... I so admired how, how she behaved. It was, it was very beautiful. It was very, he was a very fortunate guy to have someone who loved him that much during his last days. When I saw that girl there with him like that, I thought, there's nothing like that. I mean, that's, that's it for me. As great as she is in all her work, that's what I think of when I think of her, that moment. That's what I think of. Here's Al Pacino sharing a story about his friend. I was doing a play called The Basic Training of Pablo Hummel on Broadway. And it was a really great role. And I had, I had done things with it, and I had gotten the Tony Award, and I was really, uh, you know, I remember John was coming to see it. And I don't like to know when anyone's in the house, but I knew John was in the house, right? And every single thing I did, every scene I did, I was trying to impress John. And I knew I'm doing this. I'm saying, I'm not doing this. I'm trying to impress John. Yeah. And uh, it was over. And I was really unhappy because I knew I hadn't done it. And John came back. <laughs> and he said, it's very impressive. <laughs> very impressive. I thought, yes, John. I said, you know what? I said, he was so graceful, though. He was so gracious about it all. But I, I said, you know, I, I, I knew you were there, and I was trying to, I was doing everything twice as much as I had to do it, you know. He says, it was good, Al. It was good. It was good. He said, you don't know. You don't realize that, you know, you've been there. But I knew I had. So I was very, you know, he was like one of my idols, so that when he was coming to see me, it was... You give all out, and that's the worst thing you can do, is try to impress your, your friends who you love. Yeah, imagine how good John Cazell was, though. Al Pacino was nervous and wanted to impress him. Here's one final story about John from Steve Buscemi. I had a really weird experience, uh, surreal. I did uh, a voice on uh, The Simpsons where I played a bank robber. So I'm watching The Simpsons when it aired, and my partner, they, they did a likeness of uh, John Cassell. I was like humbled. I was like, oh my God, I'm acting with John. I don't know, I just, I like really felt proud. <laughs> I was like, hey, I really did, you know, I really did become an actor and this proves it. You know?
Screenwriter and director Israel Horowitz, who knew and loved John well, who found the same astonishment in him that so many others had, may have discovered the ideal summation when he called his friend, quote, a small perfection. And so he was. And in his films, so he is. The Life of John Cazale. This is Our American Stories. Great job on this script, Greg, as always. Great job, team. Let's go out with The Godfather. is our American stories and this has become one of our favorite segments our come together segments and just to give you an idea of some of the segments in the past you may have missed that you can go on our website and get Bing and Bowie it's the story of Bing Crosby and David Bowie getting together to record the little drummer boy one this glam rocker with red hair earrings Bing Crosby this old crooner well, Bing's kids wanted Bing to sing with Bowie. Bowie's mom wanted him to sing with Bing. Neither of them wanted to sing with each other. But then they met. They sized each other up. And then they started to sing together. And there was magic and chemistry. And they both saw it as the high point of their careers. Tremendous. We did an Aretha Franklin Carol King's story about a woman from New York City and a woman from Memphis. Both very different lives, one black, one white, and they come together around a song called You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman. And our favorite, the Zach and Jane story, and that was Zach Model, the owner of the Atlas Toolworks, a fourth-generation owner of a, a machine shop. And Jane Johnson, who was born on the west side of Chicago in a tough neighborhood, her father was never around. Her mom, well, she died when she was 16, and she was off to fend for herself. Her aunt got sick. She started taking care of her aunt finds a little local church group that trains her up for a job as a machinist. Zach sees her in graduation, offers her a job. This white owner and this young black lady are like father and daughter. It was a beautiful story. Again, the unlikely things that happen in life that bring people together. And today, we saw a story that we wanted to feature from the Washington Post that started out like this. Quote, When Julie Dombo had hands, she once used them to write a letter to the editor. She was upset with a Republican governor, she told the Wichita Eagle, and the top 1% and the, quote, right-wing influences and deep-pocketed lobbyists. After Dombo lost her hands and feet in the aftermath of a robbery shooting last year, she met a man at a banquet named Mark Holden, a lawyer, a powerful one. In fact, Holden is senior vice president for Coke Industries, Kansas Governor Sam Brownback's top donor, owned by two of the most influential billionaires in Republican politics. But politics never came up, Dombo said. They became friends. Holden supported her at her shooter's sentencing hearing. Then on Monday, he and his wife gave Dombo a pair of state-of-the-art electronic prosthetics for Christmas. Dombo has her hands again, and she and Holden text all the time, even if politics is pulling the rest of this country apart. Wow, what a story. And for the rest of the story, we're joined now by both Julie and Mark. Thanks so much for being here. 
You're welcome. I'm glad to be here. You bet. Julie, I want to start with you. Tell us a little bit about your life. We always start, no matter who we interview, we did Mario Andretti. We wanted to know where it started and where he got where he got. And it always starts as a child. Tell us about your early life, your parents, your work, and what gave your life fulfillment. Well, I grew up on a small family farm in rural Illinois, right along the Mississippi River. My dad was born... Uh, in the same house, and uh, he came from a giant farm family, too. My mother came from a very poor, poor uh, background herself, where uh, a lot of uh, her mom and her mom's sisters all worked ironing and cleaning houses, whatever they could uh, do to provide money for the family. So both my parents were... uh, had kind of a hard upbringing, my mom even more than my dad, but they went on to have seven children. I was the second of the seven. And uh, we worked very hard on the family farm. I uh, had to milk a cow every morning with my sister, and uh, we raised chickens and eggs and made our own uh, butter. And uh, my dad tried to was an entrepreneur, He tried to think of all kinds of ways to bring in extra money because mom stayed home with us kids, and uh, he had to provide for us. So uh, in uh, around 1960 to 65, he took a deed for Caterpillar, went out to pasture land, and he spent two years in his time after farming, a long day. He built a 40-acre lake that he stocked with catfish. And he was hoping to sell the catfish on the market, but so many fishermen asked to fish, he started uh, charging fishermen 50 cents to fish and 50 cents a pound for the fish. And once again, my sisters and I started our own business cleaning the catfish because a lot of the fishermen didn't want to take their fish home and do that at night. So we charged a dime of fish, no matter what size. And we would sit down there every night after school and after all of our chores and clean fish until about 10, 10.30 at night. So uh, that's kind of how I worked on paying my way through college, uh, also working in the cafeteria in college. And that's where I met my husband. I was sorting silverware, and he was running dishes. So uh, I have always worked very hard to get where I need to be. So has my family members and so has my husband. I grew up a Democrat, and my mom and dad taught me to always help others less fortunate. There were always less fortunate people than myself. I went into teaching. Uh, First I taught preschool and elementary. Uh, I did that for 13 years and then decided I wanted to do more with kids. So as I was teaching, I went back to school at Wichita State, got my degree in counseling. And in 1989, I became a uh, elementary school counselor in Wichita for four years. And I worked with a lot of Um, Poverty kids, uh, very low-income 
minority kids and black kids especially. I started uh, a boys club where I brought in mentors every week from the community to talk to the, the black boys and trying to um, get them to see that they could have a future if they would stay in school to get their education. Well, Julie, this is a, a life beautifully lived. And when we come back, we're going to find out the unlikely and terrible circumstance that brought you and Mark together, two unlikely people who got together. And this happens every day in this great country. Again, this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, our come-together story featuring Julie Dombo and Mark Holden. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and we continue our Come Together segment. This week, it's Julie Dombo and Mark Holden. By the way, both from Kansas, both Americans, very different political leanings, but who cares? And that's so true so often in American life, in brothers and sisters, friends, neighbors. We learn to get along uh, more often than we know, and uh, regrettably, the media doesn't feature enough of of that kind of activity together and generally focuses on the division. Uh, we tend to think differently about life and things. And we pick back up with Julie. And Julie, by the way, during the break, we were talking about uh, uh, cow hands and my little girl who we have a family farm and she goes back and, and dabbles in this. And she had a couple of days of doing this and she discovered cow hands. Tell, tell everybody what a cow hand is, Julie, for people who don't know what those two words mean. Oh, when you first start milking the cow your fingers get really sore, and it's tough. And so you have to just keep on going. It's like um, working on a muscle, and you have to develop what you call cow hands so that you can uh, grip and keep on squeezing till you fill the whole bucket with milk. Yep, no doubt. Now let's, let's fast forward now to that day that changed your life forever, Julie. If you can, take us to that day of this terrible incident, and then the aftermath. Well, it was August 11, 2015. I just got done race walking my usual four miles around Derby, and I thought I would just run into a local AT&T store and ask them some questions about my phone. And uh, little did I know there was a robbery in progress. I went in the store up to the counter, and I was digging in my purse to pull my phone out. And uh, the robber had circled back around behind me, and it looked like he was coming in the front door. And he was waving his gun up in the air, saying, this is what you think it is. It's no joke. Everybody to the back room. And I was very scared, very shocked. I looked up, grabbed my purse, and said no, and I went to try to leave the store, and he blocked me and raised his gun that he had in his hand. He pulled it out from some kind of back pants pocket or something when he was waving it, 
and he aimed right at my chest. And I knew at that moment he was going to shoot me. And I tried to turn sideways, and he shot two bullets into my chest from about four feet away. And it went through, both bullets went through my arm, right arm. One went into my uh, lung cavity and the other up into my back and stopped a few inches from my spine. I fell to the ground moaning and said, you shot me, and he ran out the store. I balled up into a ball thinking I was going to die right there. I felt like I was going to bleed to death. Nobody was in the store. The two clerks had run out the back door, and I was the only person in the store by myself. Finally, a UPS gal came in, and then a woman from the driver's license came in, and they stayed with me until the ambulance came. And then you fell into a coma for six days, according to the paper. When you woke up, your hands and feet had dried up and turned black. And it turns out your career ends with a quadruple amputation, Julie. This had to be just beyond, beyond awful for you. Talk about that. Talk about your husband and your family, how this affected your entire life. It was devastating. When I woke up out of the coma on the seventh day, I looked at my hands, and they were deep purple at that time. And my sister kept saying, I couldn't talk because I had a double vent in, and so all I had was my eyes to communicate. And I kept looking at the purple hands of my my sister, and she said, don't worry, they're going to fix them. But in the next several days and a couple weeks, I saw they were turning black just like a mummy. They were shriveled up and black, and I knew they weren't going to be able to save them. And they finally told me at uh, the end of August that they were going to have to amputate all four of them on September 6th and September 8th. I was so weak and so sick. I still was fighting for my life. I was on kidney dialysis. My kidneys had shut down. I had a lot of oxygen breathing because I had two-thirds of a missing lung. I was still fighting for my life every day. All I could think about was trying to stay alive and deal with the amputations if I lived. The reality of really happened when I finally got to rehab on day 77, and I spent the next 40 days in rehab trying to figure out this new life and what it was going to entail. And you had uh, the, the insurance company was going to pay for two hooks that you said looked like Edward Scissorhands. Uh, at least that's what you told yeah. the Post. But they would not cover the new hands you really wanted. Talk about that dilemma yeah. uh, as it relates to the insurance company, uh, Julie. Blue Cross Blue Shield of Kansas will only pay for, under our prosthetics uh, policy, they will only pay for one pair of legs and one pair of hooks. Many Blue Cross Blue Shields across the United States and different states do pay for electronics. Missouri, Ohio, North Carolina, those are just some examples. 
but Blue Cross Blue Shield of Kansas is antiquated. They have not kept up with the times. They still want to give you the same hooks that people had in the early 1900s. That is all they want to pay for. And the hooks are very limited. You have to wear a harness. You can't pick stuff up off the floor because the harness holds you back. You can't do a lot of things. You can't use your phone. Uh, I can't dress myself. I can't do much of anything with the hooks except I did figure out how to hold a pen and write like a second grader with them. People's Prosthetics got involved with me at the very beginning. They came to visit me the beginning of October when I was still recovering, and they helped get me up on prosthetic legs uh, for the first time. They followed me all through rehab. They've been a wonderful prosthetic company for me, but they also can't afford to give me the hands unless Blue Cross Blue Shield was willing to make an exception and pay for them. And they turned down my appeal. I had letters from uh, all of my OTPT doctors, prosthetists, everyone saying all the reasons why I needed these hands versus the hooks. But they turned the appeal down. Well, and for anybody, Julie, who's been involved in disputes with insurance companies over any number and types of treatments, uh, we can only imagine and, and empathize with what you had to struggle with. And now we turn to, and we just got a couple of minutes here, that meeting where you randomly bump into this guy named Mark Holden, and it's a banquet. And, well, talk about that banquet, just about a minute and a half here in that meeting, and then when we come back, we're going to bring Mark into the story. I wouldn't have been there except Wichita Crime Commission chooses a citizen hero each year, and they chose me for this honor. So that was the week of the trial, and my sister and my aunt were here in town, and we all went to that banquet, and I got up and spoke about my experience and how lucky I feel that I was alive. And uh, as I spoke at that banquet, uh, Mark was the keynote speaker talking about prison reform. And he was talking about prison reform, and when we come back, that had to surprise you. I think it surprises many folks when they find people from from the right are interested in stuff that people on the left are interested in. It also interests very often people on the right, things that people on the left are interested in. We don't sometimes know that these paths cross until we literally stumble upon one another. And that's what happened here at this banquet. Mark Holden, Julie Dumbo, a meeting, a chance meeting that changed both of their lives. Our Come Together story and series continues here on Our American Stories. Joining us after the break, Mark Holden of Coke Industries.
is Our American Stories, and we continue with our Come Together story. Julie Dombo, Mark Holden, one, uh, a Democrat, a traditional sort of left-wing activist, and Mark Holden, a traditional Republican, seen as sort of a right-wing guy. And yet here we are, left and right, joined together as it happens every day in American life. And Mark, you have a tough act to follow, as we talked, uh, talked about over the break, and you had a tough act to follow at that banquet. What brought you to that banquet, Mark, and what were you talking about? Well, I was asked to give a, the a keynote address at the Wichita Crime Commission. It was their 63rd annual dinner, and um, Julie was being honored, rightfully so, as the citizen hero. And I was there to speak on criminal justice reform and prison reform, and it's an issue that Charles Koch and Koch Industries care deeply about, and and we, we really focus on trying to help people improve their lives and advocating for policies that help people do that, uh, whether it's education reform, criminal justice reform, uh, you name it. That, that's what we're focused on. And it's for us, it's not a political issue. It's, a, it's what you should do in a free society, and you should try to help people. And people succeed by helping others succeed. And it, it, it's, it's uh, the type of society we believe needs to exist. So criminal justice reform is a part of what we believe deeply in and what we think needs to happen to help people improve their lives and to really start to um, help these communities that have been devastated by crime and poverty uh, recover and rebuild. So you have people not going to prison for offenses that are nonviolent, or low-level nonviolent offenders, uh, finding diversionary paths, uh, whether it's mental health treatment, training, jobs, education, whatever it might be. Um, and so that, that's what I was there to talk about, was the criminal justice reforms that we favor and why we think it will help bring about a freer and safer society so communities are safer, families can stay together, we can save money, save lives, help law enforcement do their jobs better. You know, you would have really uh, appreciated, Mark, and... and and Julia's story we did about three months ago, it was a 4C court in Texas, and we now have had Judge Bobby Francis on any number of times. But this one in particular, we had a, a young lady named Lynette Niaves on, and she was a drug addict most of her life. Her mom was a drug, drug addict. Her mom introduced her to meth when she was 12, and her boyfriend, of course, was a drug dealer. But she stumbles into this 4C court, and this man named Bobby Francis. She's Hispanic, he's white, and she says... It's the father I never had, the structure I never had. And what's really amazing about the, these prison reform stories is that it saves lives and human potential isn't squandered. And so you're, 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 you've met this, this wonderful lady. And what do you talk about when you get uh, off stage? You, you bump into each other. You know you come from different worlds and yeah. very different political thoughts, but that's not that's the furthest thing from your minds. Yeah, and I don't know that we're that different worlds either. I grew up in a working-class background in the Northeast. Um, my mom worked. She was a clerk at City Hall. My dad was a salesperson. Um, and, you know, we, we didn't have much, but we had a strong family. My two sisters and what Julie was talking about with, um, you know, helping those who are less fortunate, we believe strongly in that as well. We were really strict Catholics. So, and my politics are... You know, I don't really know how to identify myself. I am a registered Republican, but I don't really identify with either party. And a lot of politics that these days really um, leave me feeling cold a lot of times, particularly at the national level. So what happened, though, was after the 
I got done with my speech. I walked off the stage, and I actually first met Linda, uh, Julie's sister, and Linda uh, came up to me and thanked me. And uh, Julie's Julie's an amazing person, and her sister Linda is an amazing person. And Linda does work with uh, youth, troubled youth, um, and she was talking about that's their her and Julie's passion. And that right now she, they're struggling because they're in the middle of the trial for the the person that hurt Julie. And I just said, you know, I'm so sorry. That was such an. I remember. I remembered when the incident occurred. It's such an awful thing. I'm really sorry. And then Julie came up to me, and 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 Linda asked, "Can I help? Can you help my sister?" I said, "Absolutely. What can I do?" And then Julie came up to me, and she started talking with me and explaining the situation with Blue Cross Blue Shield, and could I do something to help? And they just denied her claim. And I said, you know what, I, I will. I'll do something. I'm going to try to help you here. I, I will definitely do that. And so that stuck with me. Um, one thing that particularly stuck with me was Julie and the way she presented herself um, when she spoke at the, at the banquet. And she was so positive, just a great spirit within her, uh, such grace, such poise, no resentment, no bitterness. And, 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 you know, after everything she'd been through, and it was like, I was like, oh, my goodness. And here I am complaining when I got stuck in traffic. Right. And so that stuck with me. And anyway, after that, uh, after I met them, that conversation stuck with me. The experience stuck with me. I went back to Washington, D.C., where I'm temporarily living. And I told my wife and her sister and my oldest daughter about it and that I need, I need to help this person, we need to help them. And so I started to try to figure out ways that we could help them. And what I did was, <clears throat> excuse me, I talked to a friend of mine here in Washington who I work with, whose best friend was a prosthetics engineer, a guy he went to school with. And I just wanted to learn more about prosthetics, but then more importantly, how do you deal with these insurance companies like Blue Cross Blue Shield when they deny coverage? And so got some information from him. I called a close friend of mine in Wichita, Kansas, who was uh, close friends with Representative Mike Pompeo, who's our congressman in Wichita, is going to be the CIA director if he's confirmed, which I hope he will be, and uh, Mike's wife, Mike Pompeo's wife, Susan, to see if they could help. And um, the Pompeos really worked hard at it to try to push Blue Cross and Blue Shield to do the right thing, but to no avail. And so what happened was that was October and it was sometime in uh, December, beginning of December. I was Julie and I had been emailing and texting, and she told me that the the hearing for the guy that her assailant uh, was going to be coming up, and could I attend? And I at first I said I'm out of town, but then I shifted my schedule because I wanted to be there to support her. And I showed up at the hearing, saw her sister again, and saw Julie again. And that was a very emotional time as well. And Julie and her sister were amazing in court. Again, just that they they. The way they present the information, it's not in a bitter way or a mean way or an angry way. It's in a, it's in a righteous way. And it's also, you can tell they're empathic, yet they've obviously been the victims, the whole family, of this horrific crime by this person who was a horrible person, quite frankly. But they still had such grace. And when it got done, they both told me again that you know, Blue Cross Blue Shield wasn't budging. And I said, I told Linda, her sister, and I told Julie, I promise you, you're going to get the hands, you're going to get the arms. And at that hearing also was Steve Peoples of Peoples Prosthetics in Wichita, Kansas, who Julie mentioned earlier, an amazing guy. I talked to him. I asked him if he could call me. I gave him my business card. I want to talk to him about trying to find a way to get the arms because my sense was 
that the insurance company wasn't going to do the right thing, but I wanted to do the right thing. My wife and I did, and so uh, that's what we did. I then got into a discussion with Steve, and he was able to get me access to the arms, and um, we, we, we bought them. We bought the arms, and then that Monday, the following Monday, I think it was like, I forget now, might have been the 19th, um, but whatever date it was, um, I had told Julie that my wife and I wanted to come out and see her. I wanted to introduce her to my wife that morning uh, before I went out to, to Julie's and John's for lunch with Louise, my wife. I stopped by People's Prosthetics, paid for the arms, and we went out to Julie's house. And what, and, a, what a gift that is. That's, a, that's just really remarkable. When we come back, we're right at the end of this segment. Mark, we're going to ask you about that moment. And then, Julie, we're going to bring you back. And by the way, so often in our lives, we pass people that, well, we have a connection with, and then we leave it go. But that didn't happen here. I'm sure that Mark stayed on Julie's mind, Julie stayed on Mark's, and look what can happen in life when we follow these things down. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Our Coming Together series and segment continues with Julie Dombo and Mark Holden. Our American Stories, the final segment in our Come Together Hour. Julie Dombo, Mark Holden, and when we last left off, Mark had decided, heck, these insurance companies, or this insurance company in particular, is just not doing the right thing. It's time for me and my family to do the right thing. And so you've got your hands on these prosthetics, literally. And talk about that moment, Mark, where you and your bride, you and your bride present this offering, this beautiful gift Julie. Yeah, no, it was, um, it, it, it's one of the, I'm going to just say one of the greatest moments of my life to be able to help someone like Julie and John and her family. And, you know, it's one of these deals, I truly believe people are put in our paths for a reason. And that was, you know, there, there's a lot here that I could talk more about, but Julie was definitely deserving. So we showed up at John and Julie's house and John greeted us and I had the two boxes with the arms with me. And he said, uh, what's in there? And I said, it's a Christmas present. And so then we walked into the house, and Julie was standing at the top of the stairs. And she looked at me, and she had kind of a smile and on her face and a little bit of a disbelief. She said, Mark, what's in those boxes? And I said, Julie, you remember when we met in October, and you told me that you wanted help getting your arms? Well... I, we did that. We we bought your arms. Merry Christmas! It's our gift to you, and uh, that was it. It was a very nice moment. And in the in the Washington Post, it read, "quote She just lit up." Mark said, "It's like she got the arms on, and they energized her." Julie, uh, talk about that gift. What was your reaction at the time? And even as we as we think about it today, um, how it impacted you, and how you thought about such things down the road. I was shocked when Mark brought the 
arms up and I recognized the touch bionic boxes, I it still wasn't clicking with me that those were my hands. It was like a shock and when I had that grin I knew touch bionic boxes. And when Mark said, Merry Christmas, I bought your hands, I just really freaked. I started crying uh, smiling, I was in total shock that he and his wife would do this for me when I really was a virtual stranger. I agree with Mark says, sometimes people's paths cross for a reason. I really believe that, and that was such a chance moment to be at that banquet and to connect with Mark and for him to come to my victim impact statement meant so much to me. But when he said, uh, you're going to get those hands, my sister and I didn't know how he was going to do that because it never crossed our mind that he and Louise would spend that much money on them. They are super expensive. Nobody does that for one human being. And so the reality is still setting in for me that those hands are mine. And each day I put them on, I think of Mark and Louise. And they're very technical, and I'm 62, so I'm working really hard at figuring out all the technology, practicing holding things without dropping them, picking things up, uh, what things can I pick up off the floor of the table? What things can I do with them? So I have a wide open world of figuring out what I can do with these hands. But it's such a sense of relief as I practice with my OT gal and by myself or with John that they're mine. You know, before when I practiced with them, I kept thinking this is temporary. Touch Bionics is going to take them back. When Blue Cross Blue Shield does their final uh, rejection, Touch is going to take them back. They're not really mine, and I'm going to go back to these hooks with this harness <laughs> or learning how to do things with no hands, which you've got to just imagine going through a day, one day with no hands, and all the things that you do with your fingers. Nobody realizes what a miracle our hands are until we don't have them. So what Mark and Louise Holden did for me and Steve Peoples has just, there's no words. My husband and I have no words for how much gratitude we have for these people. Well, and, you know, we do a segment regularly, just a generosity segment, and it is it is astounding the, the 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 comments we get, the mailings we get, and generally two things happen when we're asking people for acts of kindness and random acts of kindness. The person who receives is so touched that though they may have been generous in the past, it unleashed a new kind of generosity. And for the person who gave, well, the the, the gift of giving may be even greater than the gift of receiving. Mark, talk about that because so much. Uh, so much is not written about this subject of generosity and, by the way, its companion, gratitude. Yeah, no, it's, um, again, like I said earlier when I first met 
Julie at that banquet, I I was having a real humbling moment that this woman who'd been through, through so much was so strong and so positive. And I just, I feel a lot of times I whine about my circumstances and I have absolutely nothing to whine about. So, I mean, my point of view is that it really, and, and again, it was how I was raised and how I try to live my life, that when you can help someone, you should help them. It's the right thing to do. That's what we are really, truly here for on Earth. Um, again, going back to what I said about the way we look at things from where I work with Charles Koch, helping people improve their lives, this is all part of the same thought process. And I was able to help someone like Julie and her family. I, I was I was proud to do it. I, I was I'm, I'm very glad I did it. It's the right thing to do, and and I think that at some point in time, at some day, if anyone who you know my family or a loved one needs something, I'd want them to do the same thing. It's the you know, for what whatsoever you do uh, to people you don't know, to the least of my brothers, that you do unto me. Um, that's in the Bible. And it is why we're here on earth at the end of the day is to try to help people. And this is a way I could help someone, and my wife could help someone in a very tangible way, someone who was so deserving and had been so obviously the victim of that horrible crime and then the victim of uh, the insurance company not doing the right thing. And so we were just being really grateful to be able to do it, and I'd do it again in a heartbeat. That's great, and you're right. There is a double victim status here, and what's fascinating is is that you know you you spent your life in the end, Julie, helping people. I mean, you 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 were working with kids your whole life and giving actually your life to people. So your generosity was just remarkable, and you knew hard work. And, and frankly, both of you came from you know working class circumstances, so you had so many things in common. And again, in this current climate. Too often, we'll try and find those few things that seemingly separate people, and yet all these other things bring them together. Julie, talk, talk about life going forward, if you can, and talk about, for our listeners, this very unusual, this very unusual and beautiful friendship and where you think it's heading. Because I, I, something tells me that you and Mark will be talking for many, many years to come. I hope that Mark and I stay connected forever. I love this guy. We text every week. Every time I see his name on my phone, I light up. I'm excited to hear from him. And uh, I, I hope I'm not bugging him when I text him quite a bit. And sometimes my husband and my daughter say, don't, uh, don't be bugging him. He's a busy man. And I'm like, Mark and I have our own relationship. Don't worry about it. And I just start laughing because I can, I could just tell that Mark and I are connected on a whole personal level now uh, immediately because he's a kindred spirit. I could tell just by when he and his wife came out here and we talked about our families and our upbringing. We have a lot in common. Our parents both taught us both to give back to society, to give back to the less fortunate. Uh, I spent a lot of my money buying clothes or school supplies or things for kids in poverty that I was working with. And when I finally retired, I volunteered to work for free as the truancy counselor for my district because no one wanted to go out to the homes. They were scared. It didn't bother me. I was going to go out to those homes. I was going to make those calls trying to keep kids in school because that was my passion. 
and I can tell Mark has that same passion. The criminals that he's trying to help are my former middle school That's right. students. That's right. I just told Mark one of my favorite students is in jail right now because he got caught selling drugs, and he's looking at five to ten years in prison for selling drugs. We are trying to help the same population and keep them in school. That was taken away from me with this incident. I'm going to have to be on a different path, but I have um, given three school assemblies. I hope to still go out and talk to kids and schools and people about being grateful for what you have in life and giving back to society. Well, what a beautiful message, Julie and Mark. What a great story. And by the way, when you said, when I see his name on my phone, I light up, don't we want that to be our name on someone's phone? Folks, it doesn't get better than this. The story of Julie Dumbo and Mark Holden here on our Come Together segment. Thank you both very much. Our, our audience really appreciates it. Thank you. Bye, guys. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages.